We've been studying the, the little book of Haggai, and if you want to find it in your Bible, we've, we've said uh, every week that it's okay to use the table of contents because nobody knows how to find this book, so just look at the table of contents, find the page number, and meet us over there. I probably should have uh, told you this earlier in the series in setting up. The book of Haggai, even though it's only two chapters in our Bible, is actually four messages or four proclamations from God through the prophet Haggai, and they're all set off with a timestamp, like a day stamp, like when you send an email or you send a text, there is a day timestamp, so you know when that came through, and uh, I've heard you can manipulate those and make it look like you sent it at another time, but those of you who are criminals know about that, I don't know about that, but with Haggai, right before he gives his message, he gives a time step. For example, the very beginning of the book, if you were here with us two weeks ago, it says, in the second year of King Darius, so the second year that he was king, that he was ruling, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, now, not all prophets do this, but Haggai is very specific, gives exact time and date as to when he gives each message. You probably know this, that the Hebrew calendar of the Old Testament does not line up with our calendar, but if you, if you overlaid them, this first message took place at the end of August, probably August 29th is the day that he gives this first message. And we covered half of the first message in week one, and then the second half and the, the second message in week two. The second message actually starts in chapter two. So message number one is all of chapter one, August 29th. Message number two in the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, which would have been six to seven weeks later, from the first message, so now we're mid-October when he gives the second message. We're going to look at the last two messages, which begin in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 20. Those are where the third and fourth messages are. Interestingly, they happen on the same day. God gives two messages, proclamations, on the same day, and it is the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of King Darius, which is mid-December, quite possibly December 18th. So, hey guys, giving this message, everybody's all decorated for Christmas, they're singing Christmas carols at this point, uh, making their nice list, and they're, I'm just kidding, Christmas hasn't happened yet, so that, I was just seeing if you were awake, and no, you are not awake uh, if we had talked about their decorating, some of you would have gotten mad anyway because it's not Thanksgiving yet, and I know how you are. Thanksgiving actually hadn't happened either uh, when we get here. What, where we are, we're 500 years before Jesus is born, so that's Christmas. We're 500 years before the first Christmas, and Haggai is giving his third message in the middle of our December, around December 18th. This is how he starts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. So message number three starts with audience participation. 
Haggai is asking a hypothetical question related to consecrated meat. You were all talking about consecrated meat just this past week, I'm sure. No, consecrated meat is not really something practical that we talk about. Uh, there's not even really a good practical analogy for us. So uh, let me summarize it this way. In the Old Testament, God commanded that His people make certain sacrifices for their sins at various times throughout the year. You were supposed to bring a sacrifice uh, at certain festivals or bring a sacrifice when you disobeyed God. You could not bring any old thing that you wanted. You couldn't bring whatever was left over around your house and give that to God. You, you couldn't collect all of the things that you didn't want. It wasn't a garage sale, okay? It wasn't, let's find all the things we don't want and give it to God. You, you couldn't scoop up roadkill on the way to the temple and say, okay, here's my thing, God. I'm really sorry that I sinned. God was very specific about the sacrifice that you were supposed to bring. It was to be the first. It was to be the best. It was to be, uh, the Old Testament uses the phrase, without blemish. In other words, it couldn't be the sick lamb or the sick pigeon or the one that was about to die. It had to be your best. Then that sacrifice had to be blessed and prepared by the priest. So it was consecrated. It was set apart for God from what you owned because of your sin. You set apart, you consecrated, you made holy some animal sacrifice that you would then take to God. Now, Haggai offers this question. Suppose you did all of that. You got a spotless lamb, no blemish, the best of the best from your flock, and you took it to the priest, had it prepared and blessed, and then you were going to take it to sacrifice. But on the way, uh, again, just for our language, you stuck it in the pocket of your coat. You had it wrapped up, you put it in the pocket of your coat, and you're walking to the temple to offer it as a sacrifice. And along the way, you go through the market, and as you're going through the market, this consecrated, this holy sacrificial lamb touches some other food. They mentioned stew and, and bread and olive oil and other food. If it touches anything, here's the hypo hypothetical question Haggai asked. Does that other thing become holy because it touched your holy sacrifice? Does it become consecrated, set apart? For God, clean, if it touches the pocket of your coat that has the consecrated lamb. And, and the priests say, well, no, that's not how this works. Holiness, uh, cleanness in this sacred sense is not transferable in that way. Haggai says, okay, let's go to hypothetical question number two. This is verse 13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, do those things then become defiled? They don't become holy if something holy touches them. Do they become defiled if something defiled touches them? Again, this is out of our experience, 
But along with these instructions about the sacrifices, this is, would be Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that part of the Bible, God also said there are certain things that make you unclean for a period of time. Uh, and and th there was a range of different things. Uh, touching a dead body was one of them. If you had to move a dead body or if some, your family member passed away and you had to prepare that dead body and bury the dead body, there was a period of time that you were considered unclean, unholy. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't participate in worship. You couldn't offer a sacrifice. You had to stay away from the temple. And in some cases, you had to stay away from other people because if you were unclean and you touched them, they would become unclean. So Haggai says, well, let's flip it around and if somebody who is unclean, let's say they touched a dead body, if that person touches food, does the food become unclean? Second part of verse 13, yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. So, a holy something can't touch a defiled something and make it holy, but a defiled something can touch a holy something and make it defiled. Let me, make, let me make a big general broad statement, and then we'll break it down. The negative, this is what Haggai is saying, the negative is much more transferable than the positive, just to use some general language. The negative is much more transferable than the positive, and we know this to be true. Uh, it's Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, you see people that you know, or maybe you meet new people. Maybe you introduce yourself to some, somebody in the hallway. There's lots of talking and catching up from the week, and how was your week? And there's a lot of handshaking, if you haven't noticed. A lot of handshaking, a lot of hugging, some high fives, some fist bumps. A lot of handshaking in the hallway. So picture this. You have washed your hands or you use the little hand sanitizers we have, right? The little squirty things. And you got all the germs killed and you're all clean and your, your hands are fresh, freshly washed. Somebody you know comes around the corner. Unbeknownst to you, their hands are not clean. And I will let you decide how their hands got not clean. That's your part of the story. Use your own imagination. For In some way... They have germs. You don't have germs. If you shake their hand, not knowing about their germs, does your cleanness transfer to their dirty hands and make their dirty hands clean? Audience participation time? Okay, good. Does their germy, dirty hands transfer to your clean hands and potentially make your clean hands germy? Yes. It's a very simple analogy that Haggai is making. We tend to transfer negative a lot faster than we transfer positive. It's winter time. Like it finally got here, which means it's flu season, right? It's coughing cold, strep throat season, which is why we tell our kids a lot. You need to wash your hands. You need to wash your hands. We tell adults, you need to wash your hands. Be sure you wash your hands. When you come out of the bathroom, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Keep your hands away from your eyes and your mouth and your nose and your ear. Keep, keep your hands away and wash them a lot. 
because we know which way things get transferred. It's why schools have a policy. You must be fever-free for 24 hours before you send your kid back. Your kid must be fever-free. Why? Because they know that if you have 25 kids in a classroom and one kid is sick, he is not going to catch the health from the other 24, is he? They're not going to transmit their health to the one sick kid. The one sick kid is going to transfer their germs to everybody else in the class. Teachers, I'm so sorry. It is that time of year for you. They love to share with you too, don't they? They love to bring their germiness and give it to you. Moms have never had a conversation like this. One mom has never said to the other mom, I know your kid is sick. Just send him to our house. Our kids are all well. He'll catch the well from our, from our kids. He'll catch the health right off of one of our kids and won't be sick anymore. No mom's ever said that. Moms have said, don't send your kid to my house if they're sick. If they got a fever, I'm sending them back. Because they're not infecting my whole house. This is the way it works. We don't infect each other with health. We infect each other with sickness. Health is not transferable. We don't talk about communicable health. We talk about communicable diseases. That's what's communicable. That's what we share. That's what we transfer. This is the point Haggai's making. You don't tend to transfer holiness. You tend to transfer uncleanness from one person to the other. Now, Haggai's not the first person to say this. God has been saying this since he founded his nation. Since the very beginning, God has been telling his people things like, be careful who you're in relationship with. Be careful what countries you make a treaty with. There are periods of time in the Old Testament, God says, do not make a treaty with any other nation. Because their germs are going to get in you if you do. Their false beliefs are going to show up in you. Do not intermarry with people outside of our nation. God gives this command. Be careful who you marry. Be, be careful who you're in relationship with. Because unclean gets transferred. Now, God wasn't trying to create isolationists. That, that's not what he was doing. Certainly, there are other places in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, we're called to be salt and light and influence the culture towards God and influence other people towards God. But even in doing that, this is a good reminder that you're not always as strong at that as you think you are. You need to be mindful of the fact of how easy it is to transfer unbelief, transfer disobedience, transfer spiritual sickness to someone who's not sick than the reverse. Yes, be salt, be light, be influence, but be aware of the situation that you're putting yourself in. Just a side comment maybe, and, and then we'll move on. 
Some of us keep hanging around the sick thinking that we're going to get well. Just a side note for somebody here. Some of us keep hanging around the sick, and we've convinced ourselves we're going to both get better. We're going to wake up. Everything's going to get fixed. We keep hanging around people who are pulling us away from God and the things of God, and we keep telling ourselves, we're both going to be all right. We're both going to get well. And that's probably not going to happen. The, the, the closest relationships in our lives we, we need to examine carefully. The person we're dating, the person we're thinking about marrying, the, we need to examine those relationships very carefully because Haggai is right. We tend to transfer predominantly in one direction. Now, the, the unbelievable part about Haggai having to say this is that the people of Israel are fresh off a personal example of this happening. They've just lived through this. If, you, if you've been with us, we're reading about 20 years after the nation has come back from captivity. Why did they go to captivity? Because they allowed false gods in their land. Because they allowed people who believed in false gods. They intermarried with people who believed in false gods. They made alliances with nations who believed in false gods. And this so infected the nation that at one point God allowed judgment and punishment. The nation was destroyed. Everybody was carried off into captivity. And now some of them have been back for about 20 years and they're already forgetting this. They're already forgetting what they just went through. Now in verse 14, Haggai makes it personal. Not just a hypothetical, not just consecrated, not consecrated, clean, not clean. Haggai makes it personal in verse 14. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people. We're back to that language. These people, this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, is defiled. Haggai gives this hypothetical. They answer. Got the answer right. They're feeling good about themselves. And then Haggai says, the problem is you're all infected and you don't recognize it. There's a disease in your heart and you haven't seen it. You're not waking up to it. So as a result, everything you're touching right now is becoming unclean. And, and if, if you were one of the people listening to Haggai say this, I, I would have to imagine at least one of your thoughts would be, we've been working for three months. You told us to build the temple. We're building the temple. You told us to get started again. We got started again. We've been bringing trees out of the woods and cutting them up. We've been making this temple. And, and you're still not satisfied? The problem was, although they were doing what they had been told to do, there were still problems on the inside. There was still a lack of genuine faith, passion for the things of God, being in love with God. There were still other things that were pulling at their attention. And so even though they had been doing some good things, Haggai has to circle back around and say, here's the problem. It's your heart. 
God is always concerned about the condition of our heart above everything else. God's always pressing not to, did you put the bricks in the right place? Did you cut the trees down? Did you do this and do that? God's always pushing beyond that. Nothing wrong with those things. But those things have to be an overflow of what's happening in our heart, in love and commitment and passion to the things of God. And and Haggai says it's just not there. Your heart isn't alive to the things of God. And building a temple doesn't change that. As a matter of fact, Haggai is saying, even as you're building the temple, you're defiling it because your heart's not right with God right now. You're transferring your sinfulness to the temple that you're building, and you need to get right. Verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Haggai's drawing a line in the sand. You've started to obey. You're moving in the right direction. God wants all of you from today. And then he interrupts that thought to remind them what their life was like when they were just sort of living for their own comforts and their own pleasures and their own goals. Haggai says, don't you remember how unfulfilling that was? How you weren't satisfied? How you thought you were getting ahead, but you weren't getting ahead and life was frustrating, it was hard, and it was tiring, and and I wasn't letting you be successful. Remember what that was like? I don't want you to live there any." More And then after he finishes that sort of parentheses, he picks right back up in verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. From this day on. Everything needs to change. And I like the way he stuck the date in there. The 24th day of the ninth month. It would be like him saying today, from this day on, from November 17th, 2019, things have got to change. Sometimes it helps to have a line in the sand, a fresh start. A new beginning, a stake in the ground. That's what Haggai's calling for. From this day on, November 17, 2019, this has to change. Not subtly change, not maybe change, not I'm going to think about it changing. Things have to be different. And maybe, maybe there's a couple of us, and that's what you need to say today. You need to join in what Haggai is saying. And there's some area or areas of your life where you need to say, from November 17th, from this day, it's changing. I'm not going to try to change. It's not going to maybe change. I'm not going to sort of change. This is the day for me where everything starts over. Maybe it's giving your life to Christ today. Maybe you've been thinking about that, you've been putting that off, you've been wrestling with that. You've given all kinds of excuses, and today's the day. From this day, I'm following Jesus. I'm committing my life to Jesus. I'm receiving forgiveness that Jesus bought me through the cross. I'm living for Jesus. From this day forward, 
I'm not going to live for all the other things of this world. I'm going to reprioritize God above everything else in my life. I'm going to live for Him, not just on Sunday. I'm going to live my whole life for Him from this day forward. And then God, through Haggai, gives him this illustration, gives the people this illustration of the seed and the, the empty barn, the empty storehouse. That was God. The empty storehouse. Uh, as if to say, you know, you've been trying and trying and trying and, and you're unfulfilled. And I, I want you to know, if you'll just commit your life to me, like if you'll get your heart right, if, if you will love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you'll be all in, there is a harvest that's waiting for you. There's, there's fruit that's going to grow. You haven't seen it yet because it's still in the ground. It's not in the barn yet. It's still in the ground. But I want you to go with me. I want you to walk with me because there's a harvest that I want to give to your life. I want you to experience it. I want you to live in it. If you'll just say yes. Today's the day. November 70th. This is the day, God. I'm going to live for you. Then there's a fourth message. It starts in verse 20. It's just the last four verses. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. So two times, same day, maybe morning, evening. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. Unlike the first three messages, this message is given to one person, Zerubbabel. If you've been with us, you remember he's the governor. He's the political leader over the nation at this time. So he's the governor over Israel. This message is only for him. And God says, through you, I'm going to bring kingdoms down. I'm going to establish my kingdom over all the other. All the other kingdoms will fall when my kingdom comes through you. You're going to see power from God like you have never seen before. And then he tells him, you're going to be my signet ring. And some of us know what that's a reference to during this time period. Kings had a ring that had their seal or their crest on it. They wore it as a ring on their finger. They wore it around their neck. They kept it in a safe place. Whenever the king wanted to speak, whenever he wanted to send a message, he would take that ring with his seal, dip it in hot wax, and seal the letter with the hot wax that had the emblem of his seal on it. Or if he needed to sign a document, he would often sign it with that seal 
in hot wax or a law. If he was enacting a law, he would often sign that. Now, the signet ring symbolized this is the word of the king that's speaking. This is the word of the governor. This is the word of the ruler. This is not just anybody's word. This is the voice of the one who's in charge, and you should listen. Not only the word of the king, the word of the ruler, but the authority. Whoever had the king's seal through his signet ring, they went in the authority of the king. So if you were a message carrier and you carried a message to another king or another country and gave it to them, you didn't show up in your authority You showed up in the authority of the king because you had the imprint of his signet ring. God says to Zerubbabel, it's going to be you. You're going to reign in power. Kingdoms are going to fall before you. Your authority is going to go forth into the world. Now, the problem is, historically... We have absolutely no record of this ever happening. We have no historical record. The Bible doesn't tell us. Extra, Bible, uh, extra biblical writings, history writings, don't tell us how this got fulfilled. As a matter of fact, not long after the prophecies of Haggai, Zerubbabel kind of dis- disappears off the page. He shrinks back into obscurity. We, we don't hear any more about this particular guy that was supposed to have all this power and supposed to speak uh, uh, with authority and, and have this voice and this word and kingdoms are going to fall. We don't hear anything about it. We don't even know how his reign ended. Did he step down? Did he get removed by the Persians? Did, we have no clue. He just disappears off the page after this prophecy. But maybe the prophecy wasn't specifically about him. Uh, Maybe God was going to do something downstream from Zerubbabel, and that's what he's referencing in these comments. Maybe this was a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled later in time. In Matthew chapter 1, The New Testament begins with this long genealogy. Really interesting people in this genealogy. Interesting characters, men and women and rulers and prostitutes. Just a weird mix of people in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. It's broken into a couple of segments. And it's most people think it's kind of a representative genealogy. It's not every single uh, generation. But it's a representative genealogy from Abraham tracking all the way down to Joseph and then Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. After the exile to Babylon, so that's the section of the genealogy we're working with. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, which should sound familiar. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. And then if you keep reading... It ends with Jesus. Luke chapter 3, very similar genealogy from Adam, this time tracing the sons of each generation. Luke chapter 3, in the middle of this genealogy, the son of Joanna, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, 
the son of Sheltiel. A kingdom is coming before which all other kingdoms will fall. The voice of God, the word of God is going to speak. And one is coming with the authority of God and Zerubbabel is coming through your family. The Bible often speaks of the line of David, the family of David. Zerubbabel is in the line of David through whom would come Jesus. 500 years after Zerubbabel lives, Haggai lives. 500 years after this prophecy, the king who would be above all other kings was going to show up. And he was going to show up speaking the words of God with the voice of God. The authority of God was going to be on him and his kingdom would one day reign over all other kingdoms. And we will celebrate his coming in just a few weeks. So those of you who don't like us celebrating before Thanksgiving, don't get mad. He was coming. And Haggai didn't know who he was. And Zerubbabel didn't know who he was. But all of history was pointing to this king that was going to come. Through the ups and downs and struggles, obedience and disobedience of the nation of Israel, all of history was moving toward a moment when God would step out of heaven in the person of Jesus and would be the king who will reign forever and ever and ever. And just as all of history pointed to Jesus, our lives should be pointing towards Jesus. Our lives should be committed to the one who spoke the word of God in the voice of God with the authority of God. The temple was destroyed and Haggai rallied the people to rebuild it. The temple would be restored would be destroyed again and never rebuilt. But that's okay because the king who came would make the final sacrifice anyway. He would make the final sacrifice necessary for your salvation and mine, for your forgiveness and mine. A way for you and I to be consecrated. You see, maybe in kind of the opposite way of Haggai's hypothetical questions. Whoever the Holy Lamb of God touches, He transfers His holiness to. And any sinner who reaches out for the spotless Lamb of God, His Son Jesus, Our sin got transferred to Him. He took it for us and gave us His righteousness so that we could join a kingdom that will never fall, a kingdom that will never be overthrown, a kingdom that bears the authority and witness and word of God from this day on.
Would you live for that kingdom? God, thank you that all of history shouts the coming of a king whose kingdom will reign forever. And that Israel nor us could mess up so much that we would thwart your plan for speaking your word through Jesus, having your authority settle on the Son of God, so that when we reach for Him, when we commit our lives to Him, our sin got transferred over to Him on the cross. And His righteousness gets transferred over to us. From this day on, may we live for the kingdom that will never end. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.